This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Good morning. Jane Pauley is off this weekend. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Sunday Morning. Question. Are you happy with your paycheck? How you and millions of other Americans answer that question could play an important role in determining who wins the White House this November. By most measures, the economy is strong, but too many workers just don't think they're getting their fair share. One recent victory has given wage earners across the country hope. Back in November, the United Auto Workers Union won a historic new contract, including a big boost in pay. This morning, Robert Costa catches up with the man front and center in the fight for workers' rights, UAW President Sean Fain. Unions! Unions! Thousands of workers in fields from healthcare to manufacturing hit the picket lines last year, making 2023 the year of the strike. Working class people have to realize we have the power. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain led his union to success in their strike. The billionaires can build all the plants they want. If we withhold our labor, nothing's going to move. Coming up on Sunday morning, Sean Fain walking the union line. 
After decades in Hollywood, Billy D. Williams has plenty of stories to tell. And this morning, he'll be sharing them with our Ben Mankiewicz. When I first came out here, you... At age 86, Billy D. Williams has spent over half a century acting. He's comfortable on stage and on set. He's less comfortable seeing the final product. Have you seen The Rise of Skywalker? You must I think I took a glimpse. Oh, my God. You got to see it. You're out of your mind. When's the last time you saw Brian's song? Years ago. I don't really like watching myself, to tell you the truth. How do I get you past that? <laughs> well, you won't. <laughs> Billy D. Williams, later on Sunday morning. Hold on, <laughs> Also this morning, I'll take a closer look at the life and times of our eighth president, the man they called Old Kinderhook, Martin Van Buren. David Martin recalls a horrific chapter in American military history and how justice is finally being served. Jane Pauley will catch up with former senator and NBA champion Bill Bradley, now looking back in his own one-man show. Plus, wardrobe tips from author David Sedaris, a story from Steve Hartman, and more. This Sunday morning for the 25th of February, 2024. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The first labor union in the United States for cobblers and leather workers dates all the way back to 1794. Centuries later, workers are still fighting for what they believe is their fair share. And one man is leading the charge. Robert Costa catches up with UAW leader Sean Fain. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden paid a visit to the critical battleground state of Michigan. He came to Detroit, Motor City, to court union voters. You know what the hell is going to happen if this man's not president because we've seen what happened. 
Labor went backwards. Biden had just won the United Auto Workers endorsement, and he was eager to share the spotlight with UAW President Sean Fain. You all are the ones that brung me to the dance. And I never left you. I never left you. So Mr. President, Sean Fain tells me that he wants to ramp up his fight, not just with auto companies, but with corporate leaders nationwide over unions and workers' rights. Are you with him? Absolutely, positively. Look, I don't have anything against corporations. You just got to start paying their fair share. And the idea we have a thousand billionaires paying an average of 8.2 percent in federal tax. Come on, man. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. Last September, Biden was the first sitting president to walk a union picket line, showing his support for the unprecedented six-week walkout at all of the big three car makers. General Motors reached a tentative agreement. And the UAW went on to win historic contracts for 150,000 of its members, making Sean Fain the standard bearer for the labor movement's comeback in 2023. This is what happens when workers get power. When the workers got this union back, they were able to elect their top leadership for the first time in history. Then we saw a massive change in a short amount of time, and we're going to continue to do that. They elected you. You've shaken up the place. Well, that's what they elected me for. Fain was the first UAW president elected directly by membership. Unions! And within months, he led shutdowns on assembly lines at Ford, GM, and Chrysler Jeep parent company Stellantis. That's why we keep filing the offers in their proper filing cabinet back here, and we'll just keep filling that thing up until they want to get serious. He broke with tradition by broadcasting updates via Facebook to union members and the world at large. All three companies wanted concessions on profit sharing. And we said, hell no. Why bring people into the process when usually these negotiations happen behind closed doors? It was important to us to be you know, open and transparent with the membership, not just in bargaining, but just in everything we're doing. The union's new contracts not only make up for pay cuts workers took more than 15 years ago during the Great Recession, they provide a foothold for the union in Detroit's electric vehicle future. Ford CEO Jim Farley recently warned the contracts will have, quote, a business impact on the automaker. Fain says impact is what he's all about. I remember my grandfather talking about the 110-day strike at Chrysler back in 1950 to get pensions. A native of Kokomo, Indiana, the 55-year-old came up the ranks as an electrician and still carries his grandfather's union pay stub in his pocket. If you would ask me when I was in high school, are you going to be an electrician one day? I would have laughed and been like, are you kidding me? I went on unemployment a few times and dealt with that system. When my first daughter was born, we were getting WIC. We were getting formula and diapers. It was a humbling experience. But experiences like that, they laid a groundwork for me for what was important in life and why things mattered and, and why you know wages mattered, why having good jobs mattered, why having good benefits mattered. From Hollywood actors and writers to hotel and hospital workers, even neighborhood baristas, last year's labor protests were like a dam bursting. From 2021 to 2023, the big three automakers took in over $100 billion in profits, while average auto worker pay has fallen nearly 20% from pre-recession levels. What gave us power at the bargaining table was the companies saw how eager members were to go out on strike. 
And when we were calling plants to go out on strike, the plants that didn't get called were disappointed. It was just a matter of when and how long it was going to take because I knew our members had the resolve to make it happen. This was our generation's defining moment. If unions don't run the kind of campaigns that force employers to come to the table and bargain with them because the cost of not bargaining with them is greater than the cost of bargaining with them, they aren't going to be able to build their power and organize more workers. Workers aren't stupid. They know that the companies weren't going to give them that bump. Kate Broffenbrenner is a professor at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She notes the American public sided overwhelmingly with striking auto workers. They had given huge concessions in 2007. Now the companies were making money and they weren't sharing it. They had risked their lives during COVID. And so he did a very good job of getting the public to see those issues. This was about something that was fair and this was just and that we're living in a time where corporations are taking too much. Do you think some of these corporate leaders misunderstand you? You're mild-mannered, you're professional, you have glasses on, nice guy, but you also rail against the billionaire class and you wear t-shirts at times that say, eat the rich. I don't think billionaires should exist. No one needs that much money. I think it's inhumane. Pick any city, walk around, you know, you see people starving, people without basic necessities. There's no excuse for that. And it's not because people are lazy or don't want to work. The billionaires that keep amassing more and more wealth so they can build rocket ships and do whatever the hell they want to do, that does nothing for humanity. Your critics say that's class warfare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, class warfare has been going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving the working class with nothing. So and you so, welcome it. You so want the al- war. It's always, whenever working class people ever step up and say, this is wrong, we want it to stop, all of a sudden, oh, it's class warfare, it's the end of the world. If there is a labor war being waged in America, the front lines are here. Is it right for Chattanooga to In the, the non-union the- factories of the Midwest and South. Without a union. No. Volkswagen's plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, builds their latest electric cars, And it's a top target of UAW organizers. When the company uses fear, we're going to come back with facts. And these are the facts. You know, Volkswagen made $78 billion since 2020 in profit. They paid out $24 billion in dividends to corporate executives and shareholders. The CEO of Volkswagen makes $12 million a year. The UAW has tried twice before in the past decade to organize here. What's changed since then? After the UAW's recent victories, non-union automakers, including Honda, Toyota, Hyundai, and VW, offered raises, too. I respect the work you're doing, man. Oh, thanks, man. But the extra pay came without the union's benefits or job protections. You just had the strike with the big three. Why not take it down a notch? Why come into this tough territory in the South? Oh, there's no, no, we don't ever rest. I mean, that's, uh, uh, workers deserve justice. He wouldn't take the letter. We were there in December when workers tried to petition management for a meeting with organizers. Volkswagen tells Sunday morning they respect workers' democratic right to determine who should represent their interests. The unions. But Volkswagen worker Sean Lawler says skepticism of the UAW runs deep in the community. How does your family see unions? They don't, they don't see it as, as a good, good opportunity. They see layoffs. What do they call unions? Con- <laughs> they call them communists. They call them communists? communists? Yes. Volkswagen works the same way all over the world. Still, after the UAW's success last year, 
13-year Volkswagen employee Vicki Holloway says the union's time has come. I really think we have a chance this time. Unless your eyes are just closed and your ears and you just don't hear anything, then you, you realize that we do need a union. The UAW now says a union vote in Chattanooga is approaching. It will be another defining moment for Sean Fain and for the American labor movement. You know, organized labor led the way for the American dream. And that's fallen by the wayside over the last 40 years. And it's our, it is our obligation to humanity to change that. You're not going to give up on that? Not at all. That's, that's, that's the mission. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This past week, we celebrated President's Day, set aside to honor those who've served in our nation's highest office. We all know a few things about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, but Martin Van Buren, not so much until now. In New York's Hudson Valley, in the village of Kinderhook, sits a lovely estate called Lindenwald, once home to Martin Van Buren. And if you don't know who that is, you're in good company. What is something you know about Martin Van Buren, if anything? He was a president. He was a president. Eighth Thank president you. Eighth president of the United States. Right. Eighth president. 1840, I think it 1837. 1837. 1837. <laughs> yes, Martin Van Buren was our eighth president and the first to be born an American citizen, which is more than guide Zach Anderson knew when he applied for a job here. So I had to kind of admit to my boss over the phone that I was only 85% certain that he was even a president. So it was not my proudest shine moment. Old Kinderhook. Ranger uh, Zach has since become an expert on the man Ruin, nicknamed uh, Old man Kinderhook. He's the only president who... He is the only president who spoke Dutch as his first language. Ding. One of only two presidents to never serve in the military or attend college. Who's the other? Other would be Grover Cleveland. Ding. He holds the record for being tied for second shortest American president. I know. Tied, he stands at five foot six with Monroe, and then Madison takes the crown for being short as a five foot four. But in the facial hair department, Martin Van Buren is second to no one. This is actually Martin Van Buren's shaving stand. It is original. He has some of the wildest facial hair to ever grace the White House. At Lindenwald, they call them not mutton chops, but Martin chops. Let's talk about those sideburns doesn't do it justice. They really defy gravity. Right. They are remarkable. They, they stretch out. If he couldn't claim vertical space, he's claiming some horizontal space. Historian Ted Widmer wrote a biography of Martin Van Buren. I was attracted to the idea of trying to make 
an obscure president a little bit less obscure. And I, I think I succeeded in that very small goal. I don't think I made him famous. In fact, it's 15 years since I wrote the book, and you are the first people to have found me. That's what we're here for. Um, but, <laughs> That's our beat. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> so there I am. At Van Buren Lawrence. did enjoy a brief moment in the pop culture spotlight on Seinfeld. I'm taking on the entire Van Buren boys. Van Buren boys? Yeah. There's a street gang named after President Martin Van Buren? Oh, yeah, and they're just as mean as he was. I'll just do the secret sign briefly. Um, that's the eight fingers for the eighth president. Well, what does that mean? They thought I was a former Van B boy. I'm not allowed to talk anymore about it because it's such a secretive society. Understood. But Widmer says in office, Van Buren was more than a punchline. Van Buren deserves credit for inventing our two-party system, which is nowhere in the founding documents. And in fact, the founders, most of them, said it would be a terrible thing if we had parties. And Van Buren comes along and says, no, these are a positive good. When one party gets too powerful, it's good to have the other party start to rise up again. Although he may have seemed to the manner born, Van Buren was actually the son of a tavern keeper. A striver, he rose quickly through the ranks, senator, secretary of state, and then vice president to the original populist president, Andrew Jackson. Their personalities, at least their images, could not be more different. That's, that's right. Van Buren, he's short and sort of stout. Jackson is tall and emaciated and kind of a Clint Eastwood sort of tough guy. Van Buren is much more of a politician, and he knows everybody in Washington in a way that Andrew Jackson does not. So Van Buren was better at going out and talking over politics and getting the Jacksonian program through Congress, which is a part of being a successful president. So why is Martin Van Buren considered such a mediocre president? Well, you might say it was the economy, stupid. Just weeks after taking the oath of office, the Panic of 1837 set in, a financial crisis that triggered a six-year depression. It's incredible how fast he fell, given how high he had climbed up. It was during his administration that Van Buren purchased his lavish-for-the-time home, with one of the very first, and certainly most attractive, presidential flush toilets. That toilet bowl is gorgeous. It is. It's very unique, very different than what you're used to nowadays. This was considered very fancy. Definitely, yes. To have indoor plumbing, it was almost kind of unheard of. The house is called Lindenwald. Maybe it should be called Martin-a-Lago. <laughs> a hand-painted toilet bowl, it's just a little over the top. It's a little over the top. It did not set well with the American public, and that probably was the nail in the coffin for his failed re-election attempt come 1840. After which, Martin Van Buren returned home to entertain and hold court in his capacious dining room. Uh, this is actually the only room left in the house with the original wallpaper still on the walls. That is just not something to breeze past. Definitely Wallpaper not. that's been up for about 180 years. For sure. FYI, if you want your home to look like Martin Van Buren's, this wallpaper is still available from Zubair, the manufacturer. Wait until the end of this segment before you log on to get your own. Uh, yes. <laughs> Van Buren would run for the White House two more times, both times unsuccessfully. He'd travel extensively in Europe, write his autobiography, and enjoy farming, fishing, and his family. In 1862, at age 79, Martin Van Buren died, by most accounts, content.
I thought he made a good point, which is that you can have a dismal presidency and a successful life. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. (laughs) How you doing, you old pirate? So good to see you. Well, he seems very friendly. Yes. Very friendly. What are you doing here? As smooth operator Lando Calrissian in the Star Wars franchise, Billy D. Williams made movie history. But that's just one of his standout roles. And this morning, he's looking back at life on screen and off with our man in Hollywood, Ben Mankiewicz. Yeah! Thank you. Valentine's Day at the historic Schomburg Center in Harlem served as the perfect backdrop for Billy D. Williams fans to show their love. You became our sex symbol, right? Williams, now 86, helped define the modern romantic leading man on the big screen. First in 1972, opposite Diana Ross in Lady Sings the Blues. You want my arm to fall off? Then again three years later in Mahogany. Success is nothing without someone you love to share it with. And I decided to become a romantic figure on the screen. So that was a literal decision to become yeah, a romantic figure? Yeah, I wanted to, I've always wanted to be. I used to tell my mom, I want to be like Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> Billy D. Williams didn't stop at Rudolph Valentino. He added a little Errol Flynn, a suave swashbuckler in a cape, in The Empire Strikes Back. Hello, what have we here? That line became the title of his new memoir. It details his public and personal life, his close friendship with James Baldwin, backstage conversations with Laurence Olivier, his love of being in love. The way you wrote about it, you go, I had a weakness when it came to love and romance. The first moment of eye contact, a glance indicating interest, a mischievous smile, a a sexy walk, a playful touch. That was my song. Yeah, well, that's all very true. Yet for all that charm and sex appeal, Williams convinced me he's shy. I'm really very insecure. It's strange, considering what you do, right? You give yourself in front of a camera with all these people watching. You become someone else. You emote. You cry, you get angry. Well, maybe that's why I become someone else, because I'm really insecure. Easier to be someone else yeah. than to be Billy D. Williams. Yeah, because I don't really like to talk about myself, and I like to keep to myself. Still, he's written a pretty revealing memoir, 
discussing his relationships, his children, his three marriages. Did that contribute, you think, to some relationships not working out long-term, your sort of unwillingness to open no, up? No, I'm just a philanderer, you know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> or, or there's that. <laughs> Was it a big change moving out here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding? Williams moved to Los Angeles in 1970, but he's a New Yorker. He grew up across the street from Central Park. His parents called him Sonny. His dad worked three jobs. His mother had a beautiful singing voice. She's the one who wanted to be in showbiz. I never really looked to be an actor. He set out to be a painter. He was good, too. Landed a scholarship at the National Academy of Design. Then a chance meeting with a CBS casting agent led to an acting gig. The roles just kept coming. And all of a sudden, I found myself going in that direction. I always said, you know, every time I wanted to go right, something would say, no, no, Billy, go left. Here you go. Thanks. He went left, then cut back right in 1971, landing a part that changed his life, playing Chicago Bears running back Gale Sayers in the TV movie Brian's Song. Well, that whole experience for me, uh, as I describe it, was an act of love. Brian's Song is the true story of the relationship between Sayers and a teammate, Brian Piccolo, played by James Caan. Sayers and Piccolo became friends and the first interracial roommates in the NFL. Then came Piccolo's terminal cancer diagnosis. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him, too. 55 million Americans tuned in. To say it had an impact is an understatement. You've had people come up to you and say, I never thought I could connect with a, with a black guy like that. There was a, a, a gentleman that I ran into who was a bigot who would not socialize with black folks. He was so deeply touched, it changed his whole perspective on things. Perspectives in Hollywood, though, changed slowly. After his success in the early 70s, Williams expected job offers to pour in. After all, he'd earned the nickname the Black Clark Gable. But it wasn't true because you lacked something that Clark Gable had, right? Which was opportunity. You write it's about it. It's frustrating. There's no question about it. But, you know, you take a negative and you try to see what you can do with it and maybe turn it around in some kind of an interesting fashion. Williams did more than turn the situation around. He just kept looking for compelling characters to play. I wanted to do the full spectrum that's right. of colors. You know, that's how I see myself. He found such a character when George Lucas called with an offer to work in a galaxy far, far away as Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. Look, someone's up there. The first black character in the Star Wars universe. Williams, though, saw him as something else. How did you think of Lando? Well, you know, when I heard the uh, name Calrissian, I said, whoa, Armenian, whoa, let me see what I can do with this. Uh, and then I got the cape and I thought, whoa, Earl Flynn. <laughs> By the end of the movie, Lando is clearly a good guy. But millions of Star Wars fans still saw him as the villain who handed Han Solo to Darth Vader. I had no choice. They arrived right before you did. I'm sorry. I picked my daughter up from school. Kids running up to me. You betrayed Han Solo. I'd go on an airplane and I'd have a flight attendant. You betrayed Han Solo. I mean, it was crazy. 
Crazier still is that this talented actor with a 60-plus year career might be best known to a certain generation, my generation, for a string of beer commercials in the 1980s. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rule number one, never run out of Colt 45. Number two, don't forget rule number one. <laughs> I mean, I, I've remembered that. Uh, the other one was, uh, it works every time. Oh, you still got it. <laughs> he still had it at 77 on Dancing with the Stars. And at 82, returning to fly the Millennium Falcon as Lando Calrissian. For a shy and insecure man, Billy D. Williams sure has plenty to say. In a sense, I'm surprised you wrote the book. Well, I said, okay, you, you know, you're getting on in years, and uh, I started thinking, legacy. Yeah. I want to leave some, something for the grandkids and the kids that come after that. Right, that they understand who Billy D. Williams was. Yeah. And I want people to know that, you know, I didn't approach life feeling like a victim. I just went out and had an adventure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. More than 100 years ago, a shameful and deadly chapter in American military history played out in a Texas courtroom. National security correspondent David Martin reports on making amends for justice denied. The Veterans Cemetery at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, looks like many others. Headstones with name, rank, dates of birth and death, and wars fought. So these all tell a story. Until you reach this row. Ours don't have a story. They just have name and date of death. This is my cousin, William C. Nesbitt. Yes, sir. Charles Anderson's cousin, Sergeant William Nesbitt, and Angela Holder's great uncle, Corporal Jesse Moore, both memorialized only by the date, December 11th, 1917. The first time I came here, I touched the headstone, and I said, oh man, this should not have happened to you, but I'm going to do something about that. She first heard what happened to Jesse Moore from her great aunt, Lovey. She had a photograph of him in her home, and I was a six-year-old kid running through the house, and on this particular day, it caught my attention. And I asked my aunt, who is that? Why you have his picture and all? What were you told? I was told that that was her brother, 
who had been killed by the army. Killed in the largest mass execution in the history of the army. Thirteen black soldiers convicted of mutiny and murder and hanged with no chance of appeal. Six more hangings would follow. My great uncle, to think that he was standing on a trap door that was going to fall out from under him and his body weight snaps his neck, that really gets to me. The post engineers had worked all night erecting a scaffold uh, with a fairly unique design because it was a one large single trap door for a simultaneous hanging. John Heyman is a former soldier turned historian. Just before sunrise, they were hanged. Once the execution was over, uh, their bodies were each placed in plain pine coffins. The gallows were erected on what is today the Fort Sam Houston golf course. The bodies buried a short distance away. For 20 years, their graves marked only by a number. While they were being buried, the engineers began dismantling the scaffold. And by noon, there was no sign that there had been anything that happened. They were members of the all-black 24th Infantry Regiment, which had served in Mexico and the Philippines. And that's T.C. Hawkins, and that's his older brother who went into service before him. Private First Class Thomas Coleman Hawkins was Jason Holt's great uncle. This is T.C. Hawkins, and that's a friend of his. The bravado that's associated with being a military man, yeah. you can see it's in full effect right there in that picture. Yeah. Was he proud of being in the Army? He was. In 1917, one of the things that you could do to make your family proud and to make your community proud was to join the Army. After America entered World War I, troops from the 24th Infantry were sent to Houston to guard a training camp for soldiers being sent to the front in Europe. I felt as though they should have never been sent there to begin with. Never been sent to Houston? Yes, yes, sir. Why? Uh, Jim Crow and uh, racism. There's a phrase that I came across doing my research that Houston could be called Jim Crow's hometown. Wearing the uniform doesn't give a black soldier any immunity from Jim Crow? Not in the least, especially not in Texas. They would never call them soldiers. They would always call them the N-word. A series of run-ins with white police and a false rumor that the black soldiers were about to be attacked set off a race riot. All of a sudden, someone shouted, get your guns, boys, there's a mob coming. And instantly, pandemonium breaks out. And this was the first race riot in which you had more white people than black people killed. The soldiers of the 24th were placed under arrest and marched out of town. When T.C. Hawkins' mother asked the Army about her son, the reply said only, he was present serving with his organization. They don't mention any of the things that happened. They don't mention that he's about to be on trial. About to be on trial for his life. For a capital crime. The first and largest of three courts martial was held here. 63 soldiers charged with mutiny and murder. 63 men is the largest murder trial, not only in the U.S. Army's history, it's the largest murder trial in American history. Those who would decide the case were all white. That man sitting by himself, Major Harry Greer, was the lone defense counsel, and he was not even an attorney. If you say that one person who's not even a lawyer 
defended 63 people at one time on his face is a miscarriage of justice. He was allowed only 10 days to prepare his case for the defense. 13 were condemned to death, but the commanding general, John Ruckman, kept that verdict secret from them until 12 hours before their execution. When this letter reaches you, I will be beyond the veil of sorrow. That night, T.C. Hawkins wrote his family a final letter, which has been passed down through the generations. I was sentenced to be hanged for the trouble that took place in Houston, Texas, although I am not guilty of the crime that I am accused. One day, a box showed up at the house, and in the box were his personal effects, the charge sheet, and his last letter. That's how the family found out. Angela Holder and Charles Anderson finally got a chance last month to see the room where their ancestors waited for the hangman. And they were all in here. Yeah, 13. I can only imagine. 13 condemned men. Yes. To be brought up out of a hole like this in the basement. This space, this is all you got. And the next small space is your grave, your coffin. But there were soldiers to the end they didn't bend, they didn't cry. Dramatized in the television show Roots, The Next Generations. Way down in Egypt's land, tell and They would have preferred the firing squad over hanging. Because? Because it's more dignified. So they wouldn't even give them that? No. no. Dignity denied in death became a lifelong cause for Charles Anderson Angela Holder and Jason Holt. So when did the idea of overturning the convictions become the goal? Well, it was always the goal. More than a century after the trials, the Army took up the case. We reviewed the entire record for all 110 soldiers that were initially court-martialed and made the determination that all 110 should be overturned. Undersecretary of the Army Gabe Camarillo says a case-by-case -case review found that none of the defendants had received a fair trial. Very few witnesses were called. There was very little opportunity for cross-examination. Was race the deciding factor here? I think race was very much a factor, both in the uh, circumstances leading uh, to the events of uh, August of 1917 and certainly in the conduct of the trial. Even by the Jim Crow standards of 1917, justice had been denied. Those first 13 individuals that were convicted and executed did not even receive uh, the opportunity to appeal or review their case. What about all the other soldiers who were convicted but not sentenced to death? What happened to them? Many of them continued to serve prison sentences. Some died while they were serving uh, prison sentences. Can the Army really right a wrong like this? It's never too late to correct an injustice. Private Joseph Williams, Jr. Private David Wilson. Private Ernest Wilson. In a ceremony at the Buffalo Private Soldiers James. National Museum in Houston, all the wrongly convicted soldiers of the 24th Infantry were given honorable discharges. Good morning, everyone. Angela Holder and Jason Holt were there. What price are you willing to pay to hold on to your honor. When our mother received the box with Jesse's coat, Bible, goodbye letter, and a dollar, it devastated her. 
and new headstones engraved for the men who were hanged. We'll have information on these headstones that reflect the service that they rendered to their country, just like the rest of the stones here. When that happens, when they get a proper headstone, will you feel like this is over? Yes, I have some uh, completion, some peace. We ask for forgiveness to our nation and to our army. We're thankful for a nation that can change, that can adjust and make amends. This past Thursday at Fort Sam Houston, Angela Holder stood watch as proper headstones for her great uncle and the other unjustly executed soldiers were unveiled. Now their story is told. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Steve Hartman this morning has a story of grief and forgiveness that is truly beyond words. Nakia Cherry in the black and Stacy Green in the bright may look like besties from way back, but this is a bond born from bitterness. I love you so much, Miss Stacy. Do a twirl. Four years earlier, Stacy's mom, Rosie, was killed in a car crash. The other driver, Nakia Cherry, was doing 73 in a 45. Atlanta area police charged her with vehicular homicide, and Stacy was glad to see her suffer. Yes, I was consumed. By what? Anger, sadness, loss. I mean, Stacy was furious. Let's see. Attorneys Jeb Butler and Tom Giannotti represented Stacy in the civil trial, and they made sure to keep the parties in the case apart. I was worried that if they got together, the result would be incendiary. I was very pleasantly wrong. Instead, last October, Stacy went up to Nakia in this courthouse. She thought of what her minister mother would say, and then told Nakia, I forgive you. And when I forgave her, it's like I was reborn again. You make it sound like a miracle. Nothing short. It was an extraordinary step, but only the first step from then to now, Stacy has gone so far beyond the words, I forgive you, to the actions of, I love you. She's like a godmama to me. I talk to her every day. Nakia lost everything after the crash. She now lives in a motel. So I am committed 
to her life getting better. Like how? So I've helped her with money for food. You've given her money? Yes. Rent. I was her daughter's secret Santa. I booked a trip for her to go to Miami for her 40th birthday. Her attorneys say they've never heard of anything like it. She's a remarkable, you know, remarkable person. And all that's great, you know, that separates conversation from conviction. Stacy didn't have to do that. I'm gonna cry. Actually, Stacy says she did have to do all that, or she could have never forgiven herself. We gotta make the best out of this situation. He went from the pinnacle of professional sports to the heights of national politics. Now he's telling his story on stage. Jane Pauley goes one-on-one -on -one with Bill Bradley. I got a little one here. Yeah. It's hardly an even matchup. One of us recently had shoulder surgery. Here we are. Shoot it up. And the other one is me. There you go. Here. You got this. The next one is in. The next one's in. Here we are. Swish. Like that sound? It never gets old. Bill Bradley grew up in a small town on the Mississippi River. 35 miles south of St. Louis with one stoplight. With a basketball and a goal. Well, I spent a lot of time practicing. Three or four hours every day, five days a week, five hours on Saturday and Sunday, nine months a year. 25 from over there, 25 in a row from there, 25 in a row from here, 25 in a row from here, 25 in a row from here. If you got 23 and you missed the 24th, start over. And after high school, he left Little Crystal City, Missouri with 75 college offers and a new goal. He chose Princeton, but not for basketball. Princeton did have more Rhodes Scholars then than any other university. Still, in 1965... Bradley with a jumper. It's good. He led Princeton to the NCAA Final Four. Walters to Bradley. We lost to Michigan in the semifinals. And then they had a third-place game. And in that third-place game, I scored 58 points. What were your stats? <laughs> She's asking my stats of a game 50 years ago. Well, let's see. What were those stats? 22 out of 29 from the field, and here's Bill Bradley on the 14 out of 15 from the free throw line, 12 rebounds. And tournament MVP. Bill Bradley was already a sensation, and more than a basketball star, he was just famous. It comes with certain things. I even found a strange woman in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Said hi, <laughs> and uh, I called the campus please. <laughs> Remember, I was evangelical. After graduation, turning down an offer from the New York Knicks, he went to England, a Rhodes Scholar, and a church-going Christian, until a sermon preaching apartheid in racially segregated Rhodesia. I walked out and never returned to that church. When Bradley finally appeared in Madison Square Garden, Knicks fans were delirious. My first game. Every time I touched the ball in warm-ups, 18,500 people roared, right? Because I was their savior, right, supposedly. But not for long. God turned on me, booing me, spitting on me, throwing coins at me, costing me in the street with Bradley, you overpaid bump. I was failing, and it hurt. 
And yet, today his jersey hangs in Madison Square Garden, alongside his teammates, the storied Knicks of the 70s. We have a new NBA champion. Two-time world champions in 1970 and 73. We were not the best players in the league, but we were the best team, and for two years we were the best team in the world. What does it feel like for you now to come to Madison Square Garden for all these years? Well, it's still home. Beautiful teamwork. I really believe it was the first time in my life that I ever felt I belonged. Even back in Crystal City, a factory town, most dads worked at Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, but Bill Bradley was the banker's son. The only child of Warren and Susie Bradley, she was a doting mother, high in expectations, but strikingly low on praise. The only compliment that I ever got from her was on her deathbed when she looked up at me and said, Bill, you've been a good boy. I was 52. My mother always wanted me to be a success. My father always wanted me to be a gentleman. And neither one of them ever wanted me to be a basketball player or a politician. And so, pivoting directly to politics, at 35, Bill Bradley of New Jersey was the youngest member of the United States Senate. The place for leadership is here. A seat he occupied for 18 years. But the White House, people always said that was Bill Bradley's destiny. The next president of the United States, Senator Bill Bradley. And in 1999, he took his shot and missed. The former senator was very direct during his concession speech in New York. He won, I lost. And his marriage of 33 years was ending. Without a goal, without a job, he felt lost. Until he found himself in a new yet familiar place these last 23 years, investment banking. Finally becoming my father's banker's son. And now, an improbable coda to a remarkable career. Bradley reflects on a life of wins and losses. The river also reminded me that you weren't stuck where you were in this town or anywhere, because you could always get on a raft like Mark Twain's Huck and Jim and go to a new place. Rolling along, streaming on Max, is an oral memoir. Remember, I came from the Midwest, Missouri, the land of the flat O-R, as in barn again, New York, please pass the fark. New Jersey is the land of wall and coffee and chocolate. It's a different Bill Bradley. I discovered a rich inner life that allowed me to never be alone, a kind of home. A gentleman and a success. Bill Bradley at 80, rolling along. If you can have a, a openness and joy about life that allows you to experience other people, nature, feeling the sun on your arms or whatever, every day you are going to have a full life, whatever you do. If you're headed to the theater anytime soon, author and contributor David Sedaris has a few sartorial tips. I went to a play the other night and thought, wait, is this a Broadway theater or a Home Depot? 
An honest mistake is my fellow audience members were dressed to harvest crops and drain septic tanks. Was there a sign on the door demanding that people at least wear shirts, or was it just a coincidence that no one was bare-chested? I mean, cargo shorts and flip-flops to the theater. I know we're living in a different age. Who are you to tell me how to dress for a night out? But if this wasn't a special occasion, what was? Making an effort shows respect to the performers and to your fellow audience members. I attended a murder trial in Arizona once where the mother of the accused took the stand in cut-off shorts and a Ghostbusters t-shirt. And again, you really couldn't find anything better in your closet? If in the past I was going somewhere special, I'd put on a tie, but my ideas of evening wear have changed over the years. Those look <clears throat> comfortable, people tell me, wincing at the cool lots I pair with knee socks in cold weather. And I'm like, you do know that you can just say nothing, right? When did that become any kind of a compliment? The mark of an adult used to be that you could be mildly uncomfortable for vast stretches of time. You'd put on a suit and a real pair of shoes and somehow manage to work for eight hours. Then maybe you'd change into something even more restricting and go out to dinner. Now we need to be comfortable all the time and for every occasion, except, oddly, when we're dead. Go to an open casket funeral and the corpse is pretty much always the best dressed person in the room. Often it'll be the first time the person has ever worn a suit or the first time in ages. Beautiful dresses, hair done just so. If I ran a Broadway theater, that's what I would demand of the audience. Dress like you're about to be buried or reduced to ashes in a kiln. And of course, turn off your phones. Thanks for listening. I'm Mo Rocca. Please join Jane Pauley when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.